Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Secret Birds HQ podcast. And this is podcast episode number 43. And today we are joined by Nadine Paul DeRoli. And Nadine is the co founder and CEO of Ansei Pui IT. How did I do? <laughs> you did perfectly, Joanne. Thank you so much for having me and great pronunciation. <laughs> Yay, I'm so proud of myself. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. And a little bit more about Nadine. She has experience in the nonprofit sector with an emphasis on promoting equal educational opportunities for all children. Uh, she's originally from IT and she moved to the US at a young age and maintained ongoing leadership roles in community service and youth development programs, particularly within the Haitian diaspora community. Um, and Nay Jean is going to be discussing a very interesting topic with us today. One I'm really curious to learn a lot about, actually, and it's the move, building a movement of civic leaders rooted in appreciation of culture, customs, and community. So welcome, Nay Jean. Thank you. Thank for you. Joining us. You're welcome. Brilliant. So why don't you begin by telling us just a little bit about you and just expand more on your background and how you arrived at where you are today? Absolutely. Thanks, Joanne. So I share, um, and I'll, I'll start by sharing that I am a proud daughter of Haiti. I was born there, and right. I think that that has set me up on a path and on this journey of understanding and having deep roots in identity um, in ways that have, in, in, in many different occasions kind of forged my, my path forward, including in what I chose to study as a student, what I chose to major in in university, as well as what I chose as terms of a career path. Um, I was born to an Episcopal priest and a nurse, um, two parents who were incredibly proud of their identity and their, their nationality. So even when we had immigrated to the U.S., they wanted to make sure that their three children did not forget where they came from. And so my upbringing was filled, Joanne, with examples of folklore, of, of Haitian Creole, um, of history conversations, sometimes of political economy conversations that were way too advanced for a young person to be engaged in. But all of it was really in rooting ourselves in this idea that home is, is home, right? And even if you are geographically and physically living in another country, don't forget what home means. And so fast forward to choosing to study the history of Haiti as an undergraduate, um, and specifically because I loved education, and having gone back to Haiti a few times, especially with my father to visit schools where he used to teach, um, I started to understand that while myself and my brothers and my sisters and fellow young children in Haiti all loved school, there was something different about what I was experiencing in the U.S. and what they had opportunities to experience in Haiti. And so in asking the why question, I'm so grateful that I was exposed to history to try to figure out how we could be the first black republic of the world since 1804 including our earliest constitution saying that education is a human right. But then mm. fast forward to today, where almost 30% of kids only, right, are succeeding in passing primary school. What has happened between 1804 and 2018 to get us to where we are at? And so I studied the history of education in Haiti as an undergraduate, wrote my thesis, and started to realize that things had started to unravel in recent years. This is not a forever phenomenon. Mm. And that also gave me inspiration to realize that going forward, there's ways to address this issue and go back to what has made Haiti so great in the past. And mm. so then I, I taught for 
some time and and then um, decided to earn my master's degree in international education policy because I realized that there are other countries who have had these conversations, who've had this messy, messy process of mm. figuring out how all kids can get what they deserve. Mm. And then um, because I, I believe in, in collaborative leadership, I'm so grateful to have joined forces with others in returning back home to Haiti and launching this movement called Anseep YET, which is all about education equity for every child. Mm. And it's important that we let our listeners know that you earned a BA in history from Yale College and a master's in education in international education policy from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And you were also named among the top global social innovators by Echoing Green. I love Echoing Green. I think they do such great work. And you were selected for the Forbes magazine 30 Under 30 Social Entrepreneurs in 2016. So... You are all about education, obviously. Now, you mentioned something very interesting. How did we go from being the first Black Republic to where we are now? So how would you answer that question? How did that happen? It's something that I would like to know as well. I think it's something a lot of people would like to know because I I think we can say, oh, it's, it's, it's the French and being having to repay the debt from the French and, oh, it's the American U.S. foreign policy and their, their constant sort of meddling in Haiti. I think we can say lots of different things, but mm-hmm. we can say it's, the, it's, the, it's all the coup d'etats, it's, it's internal corruption. There's lots that people can say. But as a Haitian yourself, as a daughter of Haiti, what do you think happened and why is Haiti where it is now versus where it was before as this as you said the first independent black republic i think it's because we forgot who we are Mm. i think it's because we have lost track of what made us mighty and what will make us mighty once again Mm -hmm. and i think it goes back to the topic that you uh, shared at the beginning of our conversation here that it is about culture customs and community Mm -hmm. coming together to make us so uniquely haitian and so in, in addition to, to losing track of who we are and forgetting what it actually means to have a strong national identity, you mm-hmm. start to have all the other factors like you enumerated, right? All the things that you just listed mm-hmm. also start to break apart the very fabric of what gives you a solid foundation on which to stand. And so when you forget who you are, you have all these other external influences coming in, you will start to shake, right? And you will start to go from one trend to another. You will start to try to go from one solution to the other, but all of it is very superficial until you know on what you stand. And so in my opinion, and in, in my conversations with hundreds of, of, of just ordinary men and women, as well as part of the research that I've had a chance to conduct, and now the work with APA, We've started to understand that you can have a ton of infrastructure, (laughs) you can have the latest technology, you can have every type of policy reform that you choose, but if it doesn't stand on a solid foundation, which for us is about identity, it Mm. won't last. Yeah, you know, it's it's so revealing that you say that because I feel like the discourse around IET is always about oh, it's because of colonialism and oh, it's because of uh foreign policy it's because of outsiders but i often wonder and it's not just with with haiti it's other countries it's other developing countries in the world because you can draw so many parallels between haiti and lots of other countries in the world you never you never really hear anyone say well hmm maybe it's about us maybe it's something Mm. something inward and i think when you do say that 
there's there's always this group of people that'll go oh no 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 you know it's about colonialism it's about external powers and not and i'm not saying i'm not negating that those of factors course. but i think what you mentioned is a really really salient point that's often um missing from from the conversation debate etc about and, haiti I think, and other countries in the world yeah like haiti yeah, and i appreciate joanne that you mentioned that it's not unique to haiti i think that's an important no, point for some strange not. reason we're seen as like the exception to the rule we're always there's these phrases that are always attached to haiti for some strange reason but one of the things like we said before is that if the identity isn't strong you will be vulnerable to external attack and everything that you list whether it's colonialism imperialism or policies that come to destroy your economy you will be vulnerable to letting that really shake you um, if what happens at home isn't strong and so one of the things that i appreciate um, is that a lot of the approach in talking about identity and nationality is also taking it from a perspective of asset Mm. I worry sometimes that everything that we talk about in terms of, of social movements and, and nation building is always seeing the country as deficit. White, what's broken? What needs to be fixed? What does not exist? Where is this not enough? The position of a victim. That's yeah. right. That's right, Joanne. And so what we have said is why can we not set ourselves up on, on a platform on which to leverage the assets, the incredible assets that exist within us and within our country? Definitely. And it's not just Haiti. It's it's the Caribbean. It's the wider Caribbean. It's some countries in Latin America. It's some countries within Africa. It's some countries uh, within certain parts of, of Asia. It's all over the world. It's it's You can see the parallels in, in many countries around the world. But I think with respect to Haiti, the, the narrative is always very one-sided and it's always perpetuated by media, unfortunately. But um, it's not just Haiti at all. It's so many countries, so many countries. It's just take the name away, but the situation is still the same and nothing has changed since independence or, or, or what have you. So it's really, really good to have another kind of discussion about um, you know, internally what's going on. So, okay, so let's go back to the beginning then. So the movement of civic leaders, how does one create a movement of civic leaders? How does, how, how does one even begin? Because that sounds very dramatic <laughs> and hard and challenging and difficult and all that stuff. Mm, audacious and yet so necessary, right? That's yeah, usually the word. Audacious. <laughs> And necessary. I think one of the things that we have said at Unsafe YET is that this movement sits on the question of who are we? Um, but you can't answer that question if you don't know who am I, right? And so a lot of the work that we've done is to try to figure out what it looks like to recruit a new generation of teacher leaders um, because we believe the microcosm of the society we seek is the classroom. Another way that we say it often is that the classroom is our unit of execution, but the community is our unit of change. And so everything we hope in 10, 15 years to see in every community and all across the nation, if it doesn't start in the classroom, if it doesn't start with children 5, 10, and 15 years old, it's not going to be reproduced out there, if you will. Okay, so, um, so, so, so repeat that. The classroom is our unit for execution? Exactly. And the community is our unit of change. Mm, I like that. Okay. Thank you. No, this, this is collective brain power. I cannot trademark that. That is not Najeen's words. That is collective wisdom there that's coming together from all of our community members who realize that if we can recruit teacher leaders who be, participate in the APA fellowship and mm -hmm. go through an incredibly personal and vulnerable experience of figuring out who they are themselves and then who are we collectively, they can contribute to making the classroom the unit of execution. 
And so some of that also goes back to Joanne asking the question, what is a citizen? Who is a citizen? Who is a citizen accountable for? Is it about personal gain and personal interest? Or is in the very fabric of the word citizen, us, right? Instead of talking about I and my family and my home and my context, what are we doing to really build the us? Because one example that we've realized in doing this kind of work is that you have to go to history, right? And so much of our history, at least in our Haitian context, was about things like combit, was about things like kind of collective conversations and collective projects that were about getting to a common goal. And when things started to shake and we started to move away from that, it became about a very individualistic um, kind of personal gain approach. And that's what then, like I said before, made us very vulnerable to external attack. Mm -hmm. Um, And so to answer your question, I think a lot of this movement sits on who am I and who are we? And you can't answer that question if you don't go into the very depths of your history and into the depths of your culture. But if you see your culture as something that's backward or something that's unsophisticated, you're never going to get the answer to who are we. And so, again, you have to have an asset-based lens on when were we strong? When were you, we united? Um, and when did our culture help us? Because one of the things that we love about our movement is that our culture can actually accelerate learning. To give you an example, a lot of kids struggle with math, right? We know this. This is not specific to Haiti. But what would it look like if you integrated the games that they play at home and in their communities in the way that they learn math? We love dominoes in Haiti and across the Caribbean, I'm sure. Integrate the way that you teach math, right? This does not need to be about rote memorization, memorize so you can pass a test. We are building skills as a citizen. So why not integrate what you love in terms of our culture? And I think also a lot of it is just... It's just, um, hmm, what's the word I'm looking for? It's almost, it's almost about what you're taught. Because now mm-hmm. that I live in China and I've, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm new to education, this is a career change for me um, in terms of, I mean, I used to do the guest lectures in universities when I lived in the UK, but now I'm a full-on teacher here in China. And being exposed to Eastern culture, specifically the Chinese culture, the only difference between, I mean, it's not that, you know, there's a stereotype in the West that all Chinese people are just super bright and they're, they're very good at math and all this other stuff. When you live in China and you're actually exposed to Chinese culture, you realize it's, they're not all good at math. <laughs> Obviously not. These are all mm-hmm. stereotypes, which I, we know we, they stem from some truth. The difference here is just that it's what they're told. They're constantly mm-hmm. told that they can be good at anything by their parents. They're constantly told that all they need is discipline and they, they get a lot of homework and they work very hard. And that's, that's all it boils down to. So it's almost all about what you're being told and what you believe. So if someone is constantly telling you that you're not good at math and that you're, you're, you can only succeed, for example, in musical sport or in art or in dance, you internalize that and you believe that. But if you're going yes. home every day and your parents are saying to you, Math and science are what we value, and that is what is important. And you're going to get four and five hours of homework each day, and you're going to practice and you're going to do it. Then you're just going to do it, and you're going to be good at it. So a lot of it is really about what you're being told, what and what you're what you're uh, taught to value. And I think that's a big that's that's a big thing I've I've picked up on since I've been living here and and just being experiencing Chinese parents and how they develop their their children and why they're so capable at times of just getting things done <laughs> not perfection yeah. but just getting things sure. done. yeah and i think and that, i think that's, that's big. big that's big 
Yeah, I agree. I, I thank you so much for that example, Joanne, because I think one of the things that we have learned along the way of building this movement in Haiti is that you can talk about skills and you can talk about knowledge, but if you don't focus on this question of mindset, mm -hmm. um, you will not really be undoing a lot of the harm and the trauma and the oppression that unfortunately is the case for a lot of our, our countries around the world. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we said is when we try to figure out who am I and who are we, you're going to have to go through a lot of undoing, a lot of unraveling, a lot of purifying, if you will, Joanne, mm -hmm. of things that have been internalized. And so while you give a, a positive example of what can be internalized in terms of your capacity in math, there's also been a lot of things that have been told to our people in terms of their, their lack of worth, right? Or, or the poverty Absolutely. or in terms of what is deficit and what is broken. And so when you go two, three, four, five generations of only hearing that, you've internalized it. Absolutely. And one of the things that brings me, yeah, the most pain when you see the Haitians speak about it as if that is the norm for us as a people, because mm. it's become so internalized in the fabric of who we are and our identity. And so now what does it look like for an education system to transform that and to undo it so that we start again from a place of power? So that's a lot of the work that we do in our classrooms with our children, but also with adults, because our teacher leaders are the products of a system they're trying to change. And so that is part of the work too, right? The adults going through this, this cleansing process of trying to figure out who am I truly with real honesty instead of just taking in everything that the books say. Definitely. And let's just let the audience know that uh, API seeks to recruit and train high quality teachers as drivers of a quality transformation for Haitian schools to redefine the teaching profession by promoting instructional excellence API will recruit top talent for rural schools, provide ongoing training, and develop a network of alumni leaders serving as lifetime allies for education reform. So this isn't just about mass market, the bringing of teachers in to, to teach, and then you just kind of do your thing and you go away. This is literally, like you said, it's a movement. It's about education reform, and it's about taking a different approach. That's right, Joanne. And this is a lifelong commitment, right? I think one of the things that we try to share with anyone who's interested in applying for this fellowship, because we do annual recruitment processes for this two-year opportunity, is that this is a lifelong commitment. It's not about coming in teaching, getting a little bit of exposure to what that means, and then going on your merry way. Mm. We want people who are willing to be broken down by the difficulty of this experience. Experience, broken down by the difficulty of trying to address what my identity and how do I fit, fit into the greater fabric of my community and then doing something about it. And, and you can't do something about that in two years. You can't do something about that even in five years. And so we want people who are ready to take this journey with us over an extended period of time and who are also willing to put themselves out there as models of what civic leadership can be. Because when you stand in front of a class of 40, 50, or 60 students, that is who you are right? Choose to or not, that's who you are, is that you have to be acting as a model and modeling what we believe in, in terms of the values of our, our movement. So I appreciate you, you mentioning that this is not about just teaching and then going and doing whatever else. This is about really understanding that, that the classroom and the work that you do in, in communities um, can have such major repercussions across the entire nation. Right. I've got a question, though. How do you, I'm assuming most of your teachers are, are they from the U.S. or are you, do you recruit internationally as well? No, all of our teachers are local. So this is about a Haitian-led and uh, Haitian-run movement. Got it, got yes. it. Okay, I see, I see, all, I see. Yeah, I appreciate your question. Yeah, no, I think that's part of the work that we've been trying to do is signal 
what is possible, right? So when you mention the word ambitious, right? Um, we, we, we don't really look at it as ambitious because we know what we are capable of as a people. It's just interesting that sometimes one of the questions we get is, oh, so does that mean that you import talent? We say no, the talent exists in the country. So our entire staff, our entire programming is entirely run locally and entirely run by Haitians. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense because my next question was going to be, okay, so if we're talking about the deconstructing of of, of what we've been taught and et cetera, et cetera. How do you do that with people who are foreign? Because for example, using myself as an example, someone who's teaching in a foreign country and who I work in a school where I've got Chinese colleagues, Taiwanese colleagues, and a, 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 a bevy of international colleagues. And you see the stereotypes and you see the, um, the baggage that the foreign teachers come with right? Yes. Their yes. perception of what China is and what China isn't, which is always 99.9% .9 of the time false and based on preconceived notions. So I was going to ask you then, how do you, how, how do you manage that? But you don't have to do with that because you're working with local Haitian people and that's, that's pretty brilliant. That's Thank you. Thank you for asking that. But I, like yeah. I said before, these adults, right, are also products of an education system that in some ways failed them. And right. so the work is not just because you are Haitian. Believe it or not, we often go through a process that says, even though you are Haitian, what of Haitian history do you know? Because our curriculum yeah. in so many ways is colonialized. Oh, yeah. And so of us, right? Yes, have to speak with elders in our community or have to dig deep into the truth of who we are, but it won't be found in a textbook. And so a lot of the process also becomes about learning what you didn't learn in the classroom. Mm, okay. So they go through, uh, uh, they've got the, I guess, a robust recruitment program, and then they go through a training, and then they're put out into schools in, in rural communities. Yes, it's a four-step process. Thank you for asking about that. So we recruit, and I should mention as part of the first step, which is recruitment, we recruit existing teachers as well as those who would like to integrate into the profession for the first time. Mm -hmm. We know that there's teachers who have, have sacrificed so much to stay in the profession, and so we know that among them are the civic leaders that we seek. So we recruit both of those categories, and after a four-step selection process, they're, they're entering into the fellowship, which is a two-year commitment. And during those two years, we have ongoing training and leadership development, Joanne. We believe that training can't happen in three workshops, right? This yeah, is yeah. not something that will happen, right, in three hours or even 10 hours of time. But over the course of the two years, almost every month, we're coming together as a family, as a community, to go deeper into our pedagogical and leadership development sequence. Um, and then every two weeks, while you're in the classroom, Joanne, because you're teaching full-time during these two years, you have a coach. And that's one of the things that we've also had to kind of embed into this work because our culture sometimes is not like feedback. Our culture sometimes doesn't like somebody who's there to accompany you because sometimes you think, I'm a leader, I know it all. But that's a mindset we have to shift because the coaching is such an important part of making sure that what you received in the training workshop is actually being implemented in your practice in the classroom with parents, with students. And then and that's, the, that's the second step. And then um, and the third step as well is the ongoing uh, training and coaching. And then the fourth step is when you graduate after two years, you're part of this alumni ambassador network, right? Mm, we call our yes. ambassadors those who will be promoting this work in all the different paths and domains in which to work. Um, and that's going to be part of our movement as well is how can we integrate and in some ways infect society with these civic leaders who are acting and thinking and behaving differently and acting as role models for not just educators, Joanne, but politicians and health professionals and engineers and journalists, right? How are they seeping into the fabric of every community 
and having people think differently about civic reform and also education equity. Mm, okay. And that the I love is important. Mm, and um, the program, once, once they complete this program, so they, what do they then, then do? Do they go into other professions? Do they go into to, to teaching at other schools? What happens to most of the, um, the, the recruits when they're done? Yeah, so, so far, uh, over 80% of our alumni ambassadors have stayed in education in one way or another, right? Many of them have said, teaching students every single day is what I choose to do, and so they'll continue that as their careers. Others have become school leaders, have become members of the leadership teams of communities, whether it's uh, kind of pedagogical coaches as school directors, many would like to open their own school. Um, others would like to be part of the Ministry of Education who's kind of creating new policies for what will exist for kids in the future. Um, but then others, Joanne, which is also just as important, are what I mentioned before. They're seeping into different roles across the community to make sure that everyone unites around this idea that education equity is the way forward. Because as you can imagine, it's going to be very difficult for us to get to where we can be if we also don't have people thinking about the infrastructure of the school system, right? Or if we don't have journalists and media folks who are making sure that this topic remains in the consciousness and remain visible to citizens to, who should be talking about this issue. I'll give you an example. In Haiti, very rarely will you see an article in our daily newspapers about education equity and how our education system is failing our kids. So we've thought about what would it look like if one of our alumni ambassadors takes up the mantle of being the journalist for education, right? Being the person that makes sure that across our, our radio programs, across our newspapers, across our TV stations, we're placing conversations and driving conversation about education equity. So that's why I mentioned it's important that, of course, people remain in the system, but also we're looking to play other roles across society. Okay, brilliant. And now I want to go back to the concept of identity, because I think this is so important. How, um, okay, first thing, how do you change someone's perception of themselves when wherever they look, they're constantly being told, that they're invaluable, that they bring nothing to society, that mm -hmm. they've offered nothing. How do you do that? Thank you for that question. I think what we've, yes, what we have unearthed and what we have uncovered are, are two ways that you can do that. One is about going back into history. And as I said before, it's not the textbooks that are going to tell you this, but who are the oral historians, right? Yeah. Who are the keepers of our legacy? that are sometimes relegated to an inferior position just because they don't fit the bill of, you know, academia. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of times this is about speaking with our elders and those who are keepers of our cultural tradition off the books. Um, and so we've gone and spoken and connected with a lot of those folks and a lot of those kind of legacy holders in our communities so that we to have more honest conversation about who we really are, even though it's messy. I should mention that too, Joanne. Like, this is not only about what's positive. Some of it is going to be um, very difficult to digest, right? Because there's going to be collaborators who encourage occupation. There's going to be collaborators who said it's okay if we give our economic power to another country. It's okay, but we need to figure out the full and dirty truth of our history. And then the second piece um, that we've realized in terms of really figuring out identity is that you can't do this alone. And so we really talk a lot about what it looks like to do collaborative leadership, what it mm. looks like to build and rebuild community. And that's why we always recruit a cohort of folks. We started with 30, 
um, in our first cohort. And every year we try to increase that number because we want this learning to be done in community. You don't need to go through the difficulty of understanding who you are by yourself, but we also need to realize that the, the kind of family structure that we're building is gonna be really important to figuring this out and supporting each other through the difficult moments. And so I think it's both the history aspect, but also this idea of building a community of people who can rely on each other and push each other until we get to where we're going. Okay, so it's, it's, hist it's history and it's collaborative leadership. Absolutely. And the other piece too, like I said about the messiness of this, Joanne, just wanted to mention another quick thing. Sure. We shouldn't shy away from people who push us and challenge us and disagree with us. I think that sometimes some, sometimes people think when you're building a movement, it's just about the allies. It's just about people who agree with you. No, I think YET has had a lot of people who are detractors, people who are very cynical about the possibility of this changing. And I think if you're prepared for it, it only makes you stronger. But if you're naive and thinking everyone will agree with you, the first kind of attack that you receive in terms of something that's different from what you believe, it will crumble. And, and so you, we've, I think, we're you'll, take, you'll take everything personal and you won't, you, you, you don't grow if you're, in, if there's no robust critique, if there's no detractors, if there's no one challenging you, how do you grow? And that's, that's what, right. and I think that's a cultural problem. And it's not just within Haitian context or Caribbean context. It's a cultural problem you find in, in just different societies around the world. If they're building something or they're working on something, as soon as they start to receive some critique, all of That's a sudden, right. literally all hell breaks loose. Everyone right. gets offended. Everyone starts going on social media with their tweets and their this and their that. And it just becomes this massive fiasco. And it, you just want to say, you know what? Grow up. You know, like right. grow up. Just grow up. In the real That's world, right. this happens. And what are you if every time you create something, someone doesn't critique you? You need that critique. You need that challenge because that makes you better and that makes you stronger, you know? And you need to have your detractors because they force you to be more innovative and they force you to work a little bit harder. So I feel like that's such an important point because I think a lot of, there are a lot of people out there with really great ideas who want to, like yourself, go back home to their countries and do these great things. But as soon as there's the slightest injection of, of poison, if you want to call it that, all of a sudden it's, yeah. ah, it screams and shouts and it's like come on you got to stay focused and it, it's like how serious are you about doing this do you think and a lot of the times it comes from inside your own community that's mm. where it comes from it's not that's, i think 90 percent of the time it comes from within right it's, it's from like inside the house it's not outside the house you know and and when right. it comes from inside the house it's it's really toxic but that you've got to be focused and you and you've got to really stay clear and know what you're doing and um, right. I, I really, really like that you said that because I think a lot of people who are who, who want to be entrepreneurs or who, who want to get into business, they break because they can't deal with that. They don't know how to manage the stress of people are going to challenge me and people are not going to like me. And that's okay. That's all a part of it. I mean, no, no change maker has ever done anything great without some, 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 someone trying to tear them apart, you know? I mean, absolutely. You and know, I think you hit at a, a, con a concept <laughs> that's so important to us, Joanne, too, is this idea of purpose, right? Because if you yeah. know what your purpose is, the detractors will make you stronger, to your point, right? And so yeah. what we're talking about, I think, is that step that I'm so grateful I had a chance to really sit in and work through, which is what is my purpose? 
And yeah. what will be the purpose of this movement? Because if that doesn't exist in a crystal clear North Star shining bright way, yeah. um, there will be very dark moments on your path. And some moments will actually lead you to go astray and do something that you actually are not. So I'm grateful that for about three to four years, even before we launched on Hawaii, I had a chance to sit in that question. And I think those were the three to four years that were the best spent because it allowed us to accelerate and to move forward in a way that was very, very intentional and very, very purposeful. But if I had to rush to launch this idea as soon as I could, just to get out there, just to have my name in lights, I mean, that's literally so far from the purpose that I have um, yeah. that I think it would have led me astray. So I'm grateful that I was able to sit in this question and to ask and grapple with big questions for about three to four years, even before we launched officially in 2014. Yeah, and, and that's important. If you don't have purpose, you're, gonna, you're going to focus on everybody else and what they're doing. You're going to start comparing yourself to other people. You are going to constantly feel overloaded because you, you don't have a strong sense of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I believe as long as you're very centered and you know exactly what you are all about and what you're doing, and again, it goes back to your identity, there's nothing that can come along and, and sort of, try sort of uh derail you because you're very clear very very clear you know so it's um that's very important uh for entrepreneurs and i think for what you said like for your movement it's at the end of the day it just seems like it all boils down to identity knowing who you are knowing what you want whether that's in your own personal life in business in nation building in anything it's so important that's right yeah because when we when we look at uh, across the board at nations and those nations that are the most successful quote unquote you can see mm -hmm. that one of the things they have in common is a strong identity they have a strong yes. sense of self there's something that keeps them together there's a glue you know and that glue is based on something very very real and there's a pride it's not a fake pride of waving flags and you know all that kind That's of right. stuff it's a very <laughs> no because you know that happens too it's a very strong Absolutely. internalized we know who we are we're clear and we're building this nation together and i think that's 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 the same for for business and, and anything else I agree. And I think there's this powerful contextualized vision that we've co-created with our community members. And I won't go into all the details of what it is, but there's this one line that you are, you are referring to when you speak like that, Joanne, that says, our students will know where they come from and be proud of where they come from. And that's not an easy statement, right? To go to make that a reality, you have to go through some messiness. You got to go through some dirt and you got to go through a pretty long process of figuring out who am I really and mm. can I be proud of it? Because the pride aspect of it is not superficial and it's not passive. That is mm. an active verb right there, right? To be proud of something. And so to your point, it's not about eating certain foods or waving the flag. You yeah. have to know that even when the, the foreign or outside voices will tell you you are not worthy, how do you stand up in your pride? So exactly. I think that that's an important yeah, because there's a lot of that, you know, let's wave our flags and let's eat our food and there's our culture and all of that stuff. But then you really don't have a strong sense of who you are because then there's conversations about things like, well, why aren't we further along and why are we still doing this? And it just goes to show because you've got no fabric. There's nothing there. It's, it's pretentious. You know, waving a flag That's right. is simply waving a flag. <laughs> it means nothing. Exactly. It means absolutely exactly. nothing. And That's culture, true. And I think culture changes with time and with people. So what does that really mean at the end of the day? Exactly. You know? 
Well said. The other quick thing that we've learned in terms of our, our, our movement is that this can be only done, at least in our context, in a grassroots way. A lot of people, I think, envisioned that you can change the fabric of the education system or our civics from a top-down approach. Mm. At least when you study Haitian history and know who we are, that's never been the case for us, right? You can have laws that have been written and passed and codified, it will not have a true impact on the day-to-day -day lives of, of men and women and boys and girls unless it comes from the grassroots. And so that's why our movement happens only in rural Haiti. That's why our movement is being done in communities two to three to four hours outside of the capital city, because mm -hmm. that's where we know true movement building and true identity movement has come in the past, and that's what we hope to recreate. Absolutely, perfect. I love this, I love this. When are you gonna run for president, prime minister? <laughs> I'll repeat what I just said. None of it comes from the top down, so I have no interest <laughs> in those positions. I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of our alumni hold incredible offices of, of political influence in, in, um, in, in the next few years, but I have no interest <laughs> in no, that. I, I will I, say I, no, I don't blame you. I'm the same way. I just, I just said that because it just, it's, it's so inspiring everything you're saying. But I personally think uh, people can, people like yourself do can do so much more work outside of the political world than within it because politics has a way of just corrupting people from my observation you get in there and you're all gung-ho and you want to do great work and then you, all the stuff starts happening and you see some of the best and brightest people mm. do something completely different and it's just so sad <laughs> i think politics does that politics does that but um in terms of uh, measuring impact how are mm -hmm. you, or how do you define success in your organization? How do you measure that? Is it sort of, okay, within 50, 15 years, we want to see where these students are and what they're doing and how they've uh, built change in the society. How do you measure impact at APA? Such a great question, Joanne. Thank you. So for us, I'll repeat the phrase that says that our classroom is the unit of execution and our community is the unit of change. Mm -hmm. And so until we get to a point where there is irrefutable evidence that our community fabric and our com a community um, uh, environment has changed because of what's happening in our classrooms, we're not there yet. And mm -hmm. so some of the ways that we're looking to get there is, of course, our student outcomes, right? We wouldn't be in education if we didn't care about significantly and dramatically transforming the outcomes of kids. In Haiti today, you know, 30% are passing primary school, only 1% are getting to university, and that is absolutely unacceptable, and it mm -hmm. doesn't need to be that way. And so mm -hmm. we're doing a lot of work to figure out how can this be about everyone, not just the few, not just the privileged, but every single child fulfilling their true potential and so we talk a lot about the, the academic outcomes. That's important, of course. But then there's also the social outcomes and the ways that we're building the character of our, our students as citizens. So we have a lot of metrics that we've defined across knowledge, skill sets, as well as mindsets, Joanne, that we collect data on on a regular basis. We can walk into a classroom and have certain indicators that we're looking for. For instance, are our students developing their critical thinking? Are, mm. there a, are they able to ask questions, right? Are they allowed to ask questions? That's a whole other point. But mm. are they able to ask questions that are open-ended? Are they collaborators? Are they able to figure out that this math problem cannot be solved by me alone, but if everyone on my, on my, in my pew and my bench is able to come together and add their piece, we will figure this out together? So those are the kinds of skill sets. Are they advocates of culture? Are they able to speak to where they come from and who they are? So those are all the different types of skill sets 
Another example of a mindset is, are they, are they continuous learners? Do they realize that even if they passed a test in fourth grade, that doesn't mean their learning has ended? Even if they finish secondary school, do they realize their learning continues as adults? So anyway, we have a lot of indicators, yeah, that, that kind of gets built into the work that we're doing. Yeah. But then the other aspect too, Joanne, in terms of us measuring our impact, is that we have started to, to shift the paradigm of scale because in global education, often you'll see across the world people trying to get bigger, faster, and wider as, as, you know, as fast as you can. And yeah. what we've said at us YET instead, Joanne, is that we want to go deep. And mm. so scale for us is depth. We mm. want to go so deep in the five rural communities where we're at that in 10 years, the community looks different. It feels different. It tastes wow. different right? because mm. everyone, yeah, has had a chance to be impacted by this work. Because if you start in the classroom, the kids will be transformed, we hope, but then they will also go home and start to talk with their siblings differently and act with their friends on the block differently and even have parents changing their parenting because they realize, for instance, corporal punishment should no longer exist. If we're really building and, and investing in citizens, it's not with the stick, right? It's actually with love and respect and trust. And so there's all these different factors that we're getting back to us from parents, from neighbors, from siblings that show that that impact has begun. And that's what we really want to get to. We don't need to be in every community in the country. That's actually not our goal. We want to do this so well that within 10 years, you have five model communities of what's possible. And then it can be replicated, but we've got to get to that first point first. Definitely. Okay. All right. So what parting words do you have for someone? Because our community is all um, early stage women entrepreneurs. So they've either just started out or they have an idea who are like yourself, um, passionate about their country. Our women in our community are all from emerging economies, economies like mm -hmm. IT or middle income economies where, um, they want, to, they want to go back home. Maybe they've studied abroad. They want to go back home. They want to do something. They're not quite sure how. What, what, what advice do you have for them? What do you suggest that they do? How do they figure out what's, I mean, with you, it's been education, okay? How do they figure mm -hmm. out what's, what's the best way to impact change back home, the, the way to have the, the, the strongest impact for the longest duration of time? Mm. So I think one of the things that we all need to recognize is that there's many different pieces to this puzzle. Mm -hmm. And so if you're asking the question, because I've, I've had people who, who share this with me and say, I want to figure out what is the best value add for my nation. Mm. Sometimes that might lead you astray because that might actually not be your purpose. Mm. Um, because for instance, there might be some context where it's about technology, but you have zero interest, right? In technology, right? And that's not even what gets you up in the morning. That's not what fires you up. Mm. Um, and so one of the things I think that's going to be important for us to realize, especially in emerging markets and in countries that are, uh, that are developing, um, is that we need to figure out what is our passion and what is our purpose. And then the next step from there is starting having conversations and doing more listening than talking, right, Joanne? Like, I think a lot of times as entrepreneurs, we are, we are so motivated, we're so passionate about what we want to do, but we do more talking than listening. Mm. And we do more imposing than co-creating. Mm. And so one of the things, like I said before, is figure out your passion and your purpose. And that might take a lot of time. Don't let anybody else give you a timeline for it. You got to figure it out on your own. It may be slower for some and faster for others. But mm. then the second step, Joanne, is I think entering in deep conversation with people who are very open, very candid about 
what they believe is linked to what your passion and purpose is. So if it is healthcare, for instance, go into the areas where people are most vulnerable, right? Or go into the cultures and the context where they have the most access to healthcare and try to figure out what you're hearing. What are the trends? What are the patterns? And when I say trend and pattern, Joanne, you can immediately recognize that that is not going to take two days. Don't go in with a clipboard in hand with a checklist of questions and think you're done. <laughs> mm. I think a lot of times we try to just say, oh, I talked to some community members. I know what they would say. You got to go really deep and it takes time to really enter into deep conversation and an interesting conversation with people. And I think after that, you will start to have a, a plan of action that's actually been co-created and not just coming out of your imagination. Definitely. Definitely. And sometimes you realize that you don't really know your culture. <laughs> yes. and you don't really know well your people and you don't really understand. And uh, sometimes you've got to explore your own land and really figure it out first. And that's, that's really important if you want to have some kind of impact or effect change back, back percent in home. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, great. And now for our listeners, um, do you have sort of anything specifically that you're looking for right now? Let's say like a collaborator or a partner, or um, maybe you want to reach out to a certain aspect of the community because you want to pilot something or anything that you're doing for a listener who may want to get involved or know, know more about what you're doing back in. Yes. Thanks for asking. Yeah, no. So we, and you hinted at this word before in terms of the narrative, right? We mm-hmm. want to create a new narrative that is for Haitians and by Haitians, mm-hmm. but we can't do it alone. Right. I think we actually believe strongly in the power of allyship of okay. allies who would like to promote and advocate for this new narrative, even if they themselves are not Haitian. And so what we ask all of your listeners, anyone who might be interested is join us on social media, sign up for our e-newsletter by going to our website, which is just asayapuayit.org, um, and, and sharing our message, retweeting us when you see a message or a photo um, or a note, right, that really captures your interest and you feel that needs to be circulated. So people start to speak of and think of Haiti differently because it only happens when, when we really get to that critical mass who are sharing positive and asset-based examples of what's being done in Haiti. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. So, and that's where you would like people to contact you as well. Do you have, um, other than the, the website address, do you have an email or, or anything else? We do. So the, the email address would be info. So I N F O at unsafe.org. Um, but other than that, we also love engaging with our allies and with our partners on Facebook, on Instagram and on Twitter. So looking forward to, to having conversations with them there. Great. And I see you've got a lot of, uh, organizational partners, Echoing Green Foundation, Digicel, Herbert and Nelsinger Foundation. There's a lot, and I'm sure you're happy to expand that and include more. So who know? You never know who's listening and who might want to get That's involved right. and and partner with you guys. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I want to to thank you and just to tell you that you are appreciated. All the work that you're doing, it's just it's phenomenal. It really, really is. And um, I'm so grateful to have had you on. And I hope that someone out there listening was inspired by you. You've inspired me. I feel a bit fired up now by you. <laughs> change the world. But no, it's, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. You have such a powerful voice. And um, thank you for, all, for everything that you do. And it would be nice to have you back on again sometime in the near future. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for the invitation. Okay, great. Well, that is it, lovely birds. And um, you've, you've uh, heard all the information from Najin. So please feel free to reach out to her. And until next time, bye for now.